This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me in the studio today is Dr Bob Bust, a nutritional biochemist of many decades. I shouldn't say many, should I, Bob? <laughs> thanks for that long. <laughs> thanks for joining me it's in the pleasure. studio today. Pleasure, Andrew. Today we're going to be talking about NAFLD and uh, liver stress, if you like, and obesity, that sort of scenario. To start off, there's a little bit of conjecture about what NAFLD and NASH, and, and let me spell those out for the listeners. So NAFLD is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Can you differentiate between those two and tell me more about them, please? Well, well the NAFLD is, is a situation where there's an infiltration of fat into the liver this usually happens because someone is overeating either sugars, including fructose, and particularly saturated fats and so on. So the more fats and sugars that you have in your diet, the more you overeat them, the more loaded it is on the liver. So what we've got first in NAFLD is a ballooning of the hepatocyte as the fat rushes into the cell, so to speak. With that ballooning, you also have the nucleus of the hepatocyte moving to the periphery. That is NAFLD. There's not too much destruction, but at that stage, you have an increase in liver enzymes. So the next stage from that is when you end up with some sort of free radicals, uh, reactive oxygen species, um, things that are going to cause destruction of the actual cell. This is associated with inflammation. This can also occur when you've got um, a porous gut, for example, and a lot of the antigens are getting in and so on. So that's why you need the um, probiotics to treat this sort of condition. However, NASH is the next stage with inflammation and that is associated with fibrosis, with uh, cirrhosis of the liver and also with hepatoma. So you get a, a real sort of irreversible change mm. at mm. that stage. So NASH is really the extension of NAFLD. And it's a lot more prevalent than what we previously thought, isn't it? I, mm. I was reading a, um, uh, a, uh, a comment on GISA site, that's the Gastroesophageal Society of Australia, and it was stating that thousands of patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease may be going undiagnosed according to new research, indicating the prevalence of the condition is severely underestimated by non-hepatologists, liver specialists. NAFLD is thought to affect around about 30% of Australians, but the survey of 100 Brisbane-based specialists found three-quarters believed its prevalence was 10% or less. Why is this so, Bob? What's happening to our society? Why is NAFLD so prevalent? Well, the main thing is 80% uh, of people that are obese have NAFLD. If that's 80%, and we know that overweight is actually 55%, 65% are overweight... Mm. Of those, 25 to 30% are obese. Mm. So it actually fits in. If you've got 80% of the obese with NAFLD, that gets down to around about 25 to 30%. So if you're not a hepatologist, and a lot of the doctors 
out there aren't. Of course, they're under-diagnosing simply because they're not familiar with the condition, basically. So I think the the warning sign, because you've got basically like, you know, four common comorbidities with NAFLD. So you've got the obesity, you've got hypertension, hyperlipidemia, that sort of thing, um, maybe insulin resistance as well. If somebody came in with simple obesity, right, they were just overweight, mm. um, you're saying that 80% of those are going to have some form of NAFLD. There is a possibility that yep. that should be so. Unfortunately, if a patient walks in, it's not obvious that they've got NAFLD. That's the problem. And you really need to go a little bit further. For example, I would palpate the liver, see if it's tender, see if there's hepatomegaly there, see um, if there's some sort of nausea or a malaise or fatigue going on. Um, a person that's had NAFLD and it's progressing, as we said before, they may actually get into, they may be jaundiced, for example, they may have ascites, they may have um, pruritus, they might have um, a lack of appetite. So there's a whole lot of, of things that you'd be looking for. But the main reason, I think, if you're looking at liver enzymes, the greatest, I mean, I think there's more more people with raised liver enzymes with NAFLD than any other condition. Mm, yeah. Um, so what about um, insulin resistance and, you know, for instance, the postprandial sugar low? Mm. How do you see that working in? What, what would you be looking for? Well, it's certainly related. I mean, it's obesity, diabetes type 2 and the metabolic syndrome, of which what we're looking at is insulin resistance. Uh, we're looking at dyslipidemia. Uh, we're looking at low levels of HDL. We're looking at high triglycerides, really important, because remember, it's the triglycerides that are packing into these hepatocytes. So you've got the, the diglycerides and the triglycerides. This is actually the problem. But the insulin resistance is actually mediated by this um, enzyme called JNK, or junk, if you like, which is a kinase, and it actually controls the way in which the cells are becoming uh, insulin resistant. Uh, so the insulin signaling when this gene, when this uh, enzyme is activated, the insulin resistant uh, occurs because of the lack of signaling. So a lack of insulin signaling and the, the fat rushes into the cell. And this happens because we eat too much sugar and we eat too much fat, particularly the saturated fat. So saturated fat will turn on JNK and fructose will turn on, or sucrose, which of course is 50%. So that's what allows that um, initial increase in the triglycerides and diglycerides into the cell to swell them up, to balloon the hepatocyte. So to me, NAFLD is really the physical liver changes that we can measure for what previously we would term insulin resistance, a condition. Is, uh, is that right? Well, well, insulin resistance is certainly there with NAFLD mm. and we do know that this is caused by the huge increase in our society right around the world in sugar. Mm. I mean, I, I was saying the other day, if we go into any restaurant in Sydney, you always say put the sauce on the side because of, you know, gluten or lactose or, or something and it's in there. But now it should be that the, the sugar is in a lot of these sauces. Now, if you go and have um, pork spare ribs or something like that, the sauce is absolutely loaded with sugar. If you go into a Thai restaurant, uh, all of the Thai food is absolutely bathed in teaspoons and teaspoons of sugar. Now, 
it's not just ordinary fructose in the form of fruits. I mean, a lot of fruits have also got fibre, they've got the polyphenolics and they've got all the things that are going to protect you. So if you eat a moderate amount of fruit, this is good for you. And we should be having nine helpings of fruit and vegetable a day, which is, you know, half a cup. That's yep. a helping. Yep. However, when you, when you go a little bit further and you realise that people are eating, you know, like 50 teaspoons of sugar a day, something like Crazy. Uh, the fat is unbelievable. Yeah. I was watching telly the other day and there were these two doctors, uh, genetically the same. Uh, they were twins, identical twins. And one was uh, on a sugar diet and one was on a fat diet. And, of course, the one that was on a fat diet had no energy, basically, and couldn't, you know, cycle up hills and so on. But they were given, this is what stood out, they were given a cup of sugar, the guy that was on the high-carb diet, and the other guy had butter and said, OK, see how much you can eat. And, you know, even though we crave sugar, we crave fat, when you've just given butter to eat, you don't eat much butter because it's no. horrible. No. And if you tr ever tried getting into, a, like, sugar, white sugar and just start eating, I mm. mean, you, after a couple of teaspoons, you don't do it. But if I was to give you a cheesecake mm. or um, a donut, which is 50% sugar yeah. and 50% fat, you can't get enough of it. I remember at Christmas time, I always used to wait for the plum pudding and we had what's called hard sauce, mm. which is 50% butter, 50% sugar. You'd put it together and you'd slop it all around and you'd get this, you know, it's, it's, well, you spread it like butter on, mm. on the plum pudding. Mm -hmm. I used to love that. And so did the rest of the family. But you see, it's the combination in our society of the fat and the sugar. It's all over the place. Yeah, you the know? hidden, hidden sugar. And that is the problem because both of those, the saturated fat and the sugar are what's activating JNK. And this is the enzyme that is responsible for um, insulin resistance and stopping the insulin signaling. And therefore, all that fat is rushing into the liver cells. Mm. Um, just uh, as on another point on that, uh, how sugary foods have become, I refuse to um, buy um, pre-marinated um, chicken skewers now. Mm. And I learnt the lesson the hard way because of barbecuing them, that you just have this pool of caramelised, like a scab <laughs> around them. Absolutely disgusting. Well, so I make my own and marinate them myself. Well, now. you know, advanced glycation end products, what they do. Absolutely. Advanced yeah. It really just ages you, basically, mm. and ages just about every cell in your body oh. and, and all your lipoproteins too because, you know, it, it glycates all of the, you know, APOB and 100 and so on on the lipoproteins in the LDL. So, yeah, we need to stay away from sugar. There's no doubt about that. The amount of sugar that we're having, I'm not talking about sugar in, in its natural form, but I am talking about fruit juices. Mm. If we have huge quantities of fructose, which is the fruit sugar in juices, that is also going to be a huge load on the liver that we normally... See, we normally wouldn't eat uh, eight apples, but we might actually juice eight apples and have the juice of them. But we've left all the fibre behind yes, and we've, right. we've left all the good things. So uh, there is gone. a big difference. So if you're going to eat fruit, eat the whole fruit. Eat the fruit, absolutely. Mm. So, Bob, let's go on to some of the other treatments that you can use. So exercise, let's talk about that for a tick. What sort of exercise would you institute for NAFLD patients? Well, the problem if you've got NAFLD is that you feel a malaise, you feel fatigued, you may actually feel slightly squirmish or a bit sick and your liver feels a bit not what it should. I mean, if you stick your, your fingers under your ribs, you might, you know, feel a little bit of pain and so on. So you don't actually feel like getting out there and pounding the pavement or doing a marathon. So the sort of exercise that is good, and there has been research done on this, is just ordinary walking, uh, 
or maybe swimming, but nothing that's strenuous mm. and particularly resistance exercise. Now, resistance exercise um, is good because it actually changes without weight loss, it changes some of the uh, liver enzymes and brings it down to the right level. So you can have an impact on the NAFLD simply by regular walking, swimming or, or non um, Exercises that don't particularly, you know, not strenuous exercises. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. I'm trying to get. Well, I, I, I've I've seen in quite a few people that they try and overdo it, and all they do is they get inflamed and and actually put on weight that's if right. they go too hard. Well, that's I, it's interesting what you say because if you <clears throat> lose weight quickly, that can actually cause NAFLD. Oh, so right. people that go on a real uh, heavy weight loss diet and mm. they're losing huge amounts and they're running around saying, wow, I've just lost 10 kilograms or I've lost 20. Worst thing they can do. No, so it is the worst thing they can do. You need to lose 5 to 10% of your body weight, but you need to do it extremely slowly. And, of course, the exercise that we're mentioning is not going to cause rapid weight loss, particularly if you're on the right sort of diet in the first place. Mm. Slow and steady wins the race. That's right. Um, and on a last point on that exercise, I think it's very interesting. Mark Houston, Dr Mark Houston, um, has always advocated um, doing a, a, an hour's exercise at least three times a week and of that hour, the first 20 minutes should be strength exercises or resistance yes. exercises, what you said, and then the rest of it should be cardiovascular um, aerobic exercise. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's very important too as we move into later life because sarcopenia, which is the loss of your muscles uh, and the putting on of fat, yep. uh, is rife. I think uh, in America the statistics are over the age of 40 or 50 I think nearly half of the population has sarcopenia. And in this respect, whey protein is a really good way to actually fix the sarcopenia, plus resistance exercise. Yeah. So you're right, the resistance exercise is extremely good together with the whey protein. Let's talk briefly about the benefits of whey because there are many, including not just the protein um, component of it, but the immune fractions of it. Yeah. Well, you... well, as you know, the, the whey protein itself... Um, has the lactoglobulins and has the lactoferrin and it's got the um, bovine serum albumins and a whole lot of different fractions of which some of them um, have a cystinyl glycine um, dipeptide, which of course is really good for the production of glutathione, which is a liver um, must as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Uh, it's an antioxidant that we really have to have. Um, and it also, uh, lactoferrin, of course, is extremely important for the gut. So we have many different fractions that are going to boost the immune function by having the, the whey protein, particularly um, in, a, in, a, in a good combination that hasn't been heated because if you start heating proteins, you also denature them and they don't have the same uh, effect. What about a vegetarian option? Oh, well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, you could always go to some of the soy proteins, the hemp proteins, pea proteins and so on, but uh, I don't like them because most of the research that you'll find um, would, would favour whey protein mm, mm. even above casein, which is the other component in milk. Mm. So whey protein is a very special protein in that it has the branched-chain amino acids in enough quantity that's going to keep your muscles because the, the leucine, isoleucine and valine, but particularly leucine, is the linchpin that allows you to manufacture more muscle. And as you're getting older and you're starting to lose muscle, you really need this extra little stimulant. And that's why, you know, uh, uh, people over the age of 50 should be drinking um, 
some sort of uh, liquid containing whey protein. Mm-hmm. I actually uh, provide uh, um, ice away yes. um, for pensioners because it's actually one of the cheapest meals that they can afford. Oh, that's right. Um, they're under such financial stress these days. And it's very difficult cooking for yourself too. Mm, so if you're absolutely. living alone and you're, you're older and you've got, uh, with ice away, of course, you've got all of the micronutrients already in there plus mm. this high-quality protein. Mm. And it's not, to me, it's not, uh, uh, we're not talking about a weight loss type um uh, meal substitute, but no. in, instead it's a snack to have whenever you yeah. know is a nutritious drink. So let's move on, Bob. Again, uh, to what other things you can use. So let's talk about caffeine because it's really interesting what's happened with caffeine mm. with regards to NAFLD. There's a lot of studies. In fact, I, at home I've got at least twenty studies that show that coffee, particularly, I oversimplified coffee to caffeine mm. and. We do this all the time. Mm-hmm. We do it with lipoproteins is cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Can you please talk briefly about that oversimplification? Well, the oversimplification is is having the trumpet player instead of the whole <laughs> orchestra, basically. <Yeah. laughs> and I've been raving about orchestras for the last 30 years. So um, well, with coffee, obviously, you've got polyphenolics and you've got a whole host. There's hundreds and hundreds of different polyphenolic compounds and they all have a role to play, and particularly in NAFOL. So if you start off with a, with a healthy liver... Um, the components, the, the polyphenolics are actually going to prevent oxidation of glutathione. They're going to prevent the, the production of reactive oxygen species. Uh, they're also going to prevent the movement from your functioning liver into a fat, uh, fatty liver. Uh, so the whole metabolism changes by um, the polyphenolics acting on adipokinin and um, on... Um, leptin and a whole lot of different um, compounds that we have that, that are so important for keeping a functioning liver. And the inflammation, um, some of these components are also down-regulating the production of the uh, interleukins and the, the cytokines, tumor necrosis factor alpha. So, and it goes on and on, even, even the fibrosis that eventually occurs with NASH uh, is also... Um, protected against by some of these many, many compounds that you will find in a cup of coffee. So what they've come at is if you have two, three or four cups of coffee a day, you are actually preventing the um, incidence of NAFOL-D. You're also changing the uh, severity of NAFOL-D. You're reducing the severity and you're also helping to prevent the movement from NAFOL-D into NASH, which is the inflammatory uh, process uh, that goes on after you've got NAFOL-D. So it's really quite important. So if you're having a cup of coffee, as distinct from taking caffeine tablets, which they do a lot in (laughs) Europe, I know, for for weight loss, but if you're just having, say, two or three cups of coffee a day, it is going to help you if you've got um, any any symptoms at all of NAFOL-D, and particularly NASH. I first heard about the, the benefits of coffee as, um, and we're talking about, you know, a decent, protecting against a decent morbidity, and that was looking at uh, reducing cardiovascular risk in postmenopausal women. Mm. <laughs> and that was around about five years ago. And since then, there's been this explosion of research on coffee. And I think it's really important that you, um, or I'm glad that you brought up those points about the oversimplification of coffee. Yeah, it's, it's always important, whether you're looking at herbs or foods or uh, extracts or whatever it is, to imp- 
to include more than just the particular ingredient that a, a drug company would actually modify by methylating or acetylating and putting a patent on. I mean, this is not natural medicine. Natural medicine is actually extracting things from whole plants, from whole herbs, mm. and putting those whole extracts together. And, of course, coffee is a, it's a whole product, you mm. know, and we're extracting all of those polyphenols as well as the caffeine out of it, and that makes a big difference. And I might just make the point to the listeners that the amount of caffeine that's found in the Health Each product called Liver Care is 50 milligrams, which is around about um, just over a quarter of an espresso cup of coffee, right, yeah. around about that, 120 to 180 milligrams of caffeine. So uh, but I think the point is that you're getting those polyphenolics. So let's move on to St Mary's Thistle because this is it's an old hero of the liver, mm. um, but there's much more coming out about um, its use in NAFLD. The main thing is with, with Cilibar marianum, the active component, the Cilibin or Cilimarin, needs to be around 360 milligrams that that is the dose. You know, don't don't think about taking thirty milligrams. I still think the mm. three hundred and sixty is about right. And the silly silly marin particularly is going to help reduce inflammation, uh, which is very important with NAFOL D. Uh, and also acts as an antioxidant um, in the first place because you've got not only silymarin, but you've got all those other ingredients. I mean, it might be standardised to silymarin or, or, or silybin, but, but you've got, you know, hundreds of other um, of these phytonutrients that are in the silybum marianum. Anything else that you'd institute as a treatment plan? I think the first thing is get rid of fructose, get rid of sucrose mm. as much as you can except for fruits where you're eating the whole fruit. Yep. Uh, when it comes to saturated fats, uh, I'd be really careful because there is a lot of research that shows that saturated fats are not the way to go. But I would say pull all of the oils down because triglycerides are a glycerol backbone onto which any sort of fat can go. Yep. You can have polyunsaturated fats, you can have monounsaturated and you can have saturated, you can have any sort of fatty acid and they will all go into the, into the liver and they will all be implicated when it comes to NAFOLD. So just reduce, because, you know, these days we go into a supermarket and we buy two litre, you know, polyunsaturated oils and we, we fry with it and we stick it in everything. It's too much. We've learnt, and in biochemistry I learnt that it's an essential fatty acid. We've got to have, you know, certain polyunsaturated omega-6, omega-3s, which is true. Yeah. But the omega-6s we're having at the moment is far in excess of what we need compared to the omega-3s. And change. And luckily, we've got some really good omega-3 supplements now that are absolutely devoid of, of all the nasties and so that we now have, you know, pregnant women can take some of the ultra-purified um, omega-3 supplements. But the omega-6, while we're still using too much of that, that is a problem. Um, I would try and get seeds, nuts, grains, uh, avocado, you know, walnuts. Try and get... The, uh, the, the essential fatty acids from whole foods. So pull the whole fat intake down. That, that, that is my advice. And when that happens, you're going to find that the whole um, exposure of the liver to too much fat, not just saturated fat, but all fat, is going to come down. And that is going to help in prevent NAFOLD. Let's just talk really briefly because we're talking about, you know, cooking with oils and things like that. There's a move to coconut oil. Yeah. And there was some negative stuff on that. But can you explain that? Yeah, the first time I ever talked about or read about um, coconut oil was with Ray Pete. He had, a, he had a newsletter from America. But um, 
I think that the, the, the beauty of the coconut oil is, firstly, it doesn't have the essential fatty acids. So what we're talking about, if you want to have your fats, don't get it from coconut oil because it's, it's not there. But on the other hand, the small chain fatty acids, the lauric acid and all the other acids that are in the, the coconut oil is going to be absorbed straight into the bloodstream. And it doesn't have to go through the lymphatic system. And that is really important because then it can be burnt for energy. And the medium chain triglycerides that we have in a lot of products out there are like this. And that's why people say, how come we've got triglycerides and we're trying to lose weight? Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is that there? And the reason it's there is that it, it doesn't have to go into the lymphatic system and through the liver. It goes straight into the bloodstream and can be used for energy. So while you're on a weight loss diet, it, it's, it makes sense to have um, coconut oil simply because it is used for energy. It doesn't put on fat, particularly around the middle, which is the worst type of fat. How do you explain the negative press that coconut oil has been received? What, what negative press are you having um, the, I think they were talking about the stearic acid. Well, stearic acid is, I don't think, a problem because if you have a look at some of the studies that have come out, particularly with heart disease, stearic acid will actually increase HDL and it doesn't have an impact, a bad impact on LDL, which is the risk factor, you know. Mm -hmm. So I've never been able to understand why stearic acid is a problem. Mm. I mean, there's no, in, there's no uh, indication that I've seen out there that, that it is. Now, the orthodoxy was sort of dead against this coconut oil, mm. you know, fad and things like I, I don't get it's it. It's because it's a fat, mm. I guess, and it solidifies when it's mm. cool and they probably thought, well, it's solidifying the artery and that's not what you need. But it's a very simplistic way of looking at well, things. Well, yeah, along that simplistic line, I, th I thought that one of the reasons that or how they sort of base their argument was on isolated stearic acid rather than... Exactly. Is that right? Yes. It, this is where, where we come into looking at palmitic acid, uh, lauric stearic acid, palmitolaic acid. Yeah, You'll often find that um, a lot of the people designing the big clinical studies are just looking at that single isolated fatty acid. Whereas if we have lard or dripping or we have butter or whatever it is, if yeah. you have a look at the composition, you've always got the, the full orchestra of the different fatty acids. And that makes an in, entire uh, different situation in the body because we have all of them working together and they are utilised in, in cellular metabolism in an entirely different way that if you overload with just with one of them, like palmitic acid is a very good example of a saturated fat. And it is a problem if you just have palmitic acid and the studies have shown that. But if you've got palmitic acid in combination, for example, palmitic acid is also in animal fat. So every time you have a chop or you have a steak or something, uh, that fat, that the intramuscular marbling has got palmitic acid, but it also has oleic acid, about 48%. That's nearly half of the fat in meat is oleic acid. That's the same stuff that's in olive oil, mm, mm. which is good for you. So you put all this together. That's if you're having grass-fed beef, right? If you're having grass-fed yep, beef. Yep. And, and the stearic acid, of mm, course, is mm. also in there, which is increasing your HDL. So, you know, when you're looking at um, a saturated fat and you're talking about palmitic acid, it's not the same as beef fat. Mm. Bob, you've got such a wealth of information... And I thank you so much for joining me in the studio today talking about NAFLD and how it affects many, many patients out there, but also giving us some practical interventions that we can use in our clinics um, to help these people. That's a pleasure, Andrew. Nice being here. This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.